COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. Welcome everyone to Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are continuing to cover the murder case of Dylan Redwine today. We are also hitting another milestone this week. This is episode 10, one, zero. Thank you so much to all of my awesome returning listeners. If you are new to the podcast, thanks for being here. Please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. I am always open to suggestions, so keep them coming. You can always visit altitudecrime.com for source materials and the link to purchase merch. Okay, guys, we are going to dive into the second part of our two-part episode about 13-year-old Dylan Redwine. If you haven't listened to part one yet, stop right here and go on over to episode nine. That episode sets up the crime and key players in the case. In this episode, we are going to wrap up by talking about a few different theories, the evidence, and what has become trial drama. Like last week, to eliminate any confusion, I will always refer to Dylan as Dylan and to his mom as Elaine. Whenever I use the name Redwine, I am referring to Dylan's father, Mark Redwine. 
Before we get into the evidence against Mark Redwine, let's go over some of the other theories that came up when Dylan first disappeared. We know from last episode that the first theory was that Dylan had run away. This was reinforced by the fact that all of Dylan's belongings were also gone. However, Elaine was convinced that Dylan would have called her if he had run away. And Dylan had a network of people he knew in Durango if he was looking just to get away from his father that he could have gone to. I think this is a theory that we can pretty quickly debunk. There was a brief time that Elaine suspected that Redwine was hiding Dylan somewhere in order to keep him in Durango since she had just gained primary custody. Redwine had a history of hiding his children from both of his ex-wives, so this wasn't far-fetched. Early on, Elaine had to hope that Mark had hid Dylan somewhere and it was just a waiting game before he fessed up. As we know, this theory did not play out and I doubt Redwine could still have Dylan held somewhere for all of these years. The only way I see this theory as the least bit legitimate is if Redwine still killed Dylan at some point. That could explain the gap in time before Dylan's remains were found but I'm still pretty doubtful that this was the case. Given the dense forested areas around Redwine's home, there was a possibility that, having run away or not, Dylan ended up in the woods and died. At one point, Redwine had claimed that Dylan could have been shot by a hunter near the back of his home, but access to the mountain had closed for hunting season at that point. It seems that some type of accidental death has not been entertained by investigators in a pretty long time. But Mark Redwine would continue to create possible scenarios along these lines. Kevin Simpson from the Canyon City Daily Record wrote that, quote, Although Mark Redwine entertained a variety of possible scenarios behind his son's disappearance and death, from being picked up hitchhiking, to abduction, to being killed in a bear attack, he denied any involvement. Unquote. This is also reminiscent of one of our other cases, the disappearance of Crystal Reisinger I covered in episode 7. In that episode, I talked about the difference between finding a lost body and a hidden body. With the amount of searching that was done for Dylan, one can assume that if Dylan had gone slightly off trail, gone to an area he knew, or cut through the woods to someone's house his remains would have been found much earlier on. Like I've said in the past, it's not quite the same to find a hidden body. So again, even without evidence against Mark Redwine, these theories seem pretty unlikely. So again, even without looking at the evidence against Mark Redwine, these theories seem pretty unlikely. Okay, so let's talk about the biggest piece of this case the evidence that has been found pointing to Mark Redwine as Dylan's killer. Now, a lot of this is really circumstantial, but as I said in the last episode, about the time you try to rationalize a piece of evidence away from Mark Redwine, the rationale totally dissolves and ends up pointing right back at him. Mark Redwine's past didn't help him out at all either. Some of his past actions did make him look like someone capable of committing Dylan's murder. Prior to being married to Elaine Hatfield, Redwine was married to, and had children with, a woman named Betsy Horvath. 
Betsy immediately suspected Redwine as soon as she heard Dylan was missing. During their custody battle for their children, Redwine had told Betsy Horvath that he would kill their kids before she could have them. The threat was even reflected in their court documents. She has said that he's a violent person, and a number of people have said he has quite the temper. Corey, Dylan's brother, had also said his father has a history of being abusive in the past, which of course Redwine has refuted. Betsy even claimed in the indictment that Redwine once said that if he ever had to get rid of a body, he would dump it, quote, out in the mountains, unquote. Redwine's demeanor shortly after Dylan's disappearance was also pretty suspect. Elaine and Corey thought he wasn't doing enough because he didn't help with many of the initial searches. However, the indictment did note that Redwine was seen alone around the gate leading to the road where Dylan's remains were found somewhere around April 2013. And now remember, Dylan's remains were found in June 2013. So he didn't take part in the organized searches, but it seems like it is possible he could have been in the same area alone at some point after Dylan's disappearance. When investigators were able to return to Redwine's home with a search warrant and the personal items needed for scent dogs to use, they found the following. Dylan's blood in the living room, on the couch, the floor in front of the couch, corner of the coffee table in front of the couch, on the floor underneath a rug in the room, and on a smaller love seat style couch in the room. This room also provided a hit for cadaver dogs. Dylan's blood was found in the washing machine, as well as another hit by cadaver dogs. Dylan's blood was found in Redwine's pickup truck bed, as well as another hit by cadaver dogs. And Dylan's blood was found on the clothes he was wearing the day he arrived in Durango. I am a bit unclear on this blood evidence as far as if it was actual blood or found with luminol or something similar that like blood had clean, been cleaned up and they found traces of it. But regardless, the locations that it was found have been very confirmed and very well documented in the press. And additionally, the DNA was tested and matched to Dylan. Redwine also said some pretty disturbing things after Dylan went missing. Allison Silt's reporting for Nine News noted that in the grand jury indictment, Dylan's half-brother is quoted in regards to a conversation he had with Mark Redwine in June 2013. He remembered that Redwine talked about, quote, blunt force trauma several times and discussed how investigators would have to find the rest of the body, including the skull, before they could determine the cause of death, unquote. Now keep in mind, this comment came shortly after finding partial remains of Dylan in June 2013. His skull was not found until 2015, and guess what? Had blunt force trauma. Also, this is certainly a strange thing to be talking about in general, especially when it's your own son. And I feel like we see this a lot with guilty parties. Like, if they talk about it super casually, it is going to point investigations away from them. And FYI, it doesn't work. Also noted in the indictment was that four alternative suspects had been brought up through the course of the hearing, but the public has not heard about 
these and I can give you literally no information on these people. Redwine is the only person to publicly be named a person of interest in the case. In addition to the physical evidence, I also want to touch base on a little bit of science in this case. So let's revisit a comment I made in the last episode. I had said that when I learned about the location of the first set of remains and the distance between Dylan's skull found later on, that I initially thought that this could be chalked up to animal activity. But the indictment noted, quote, Lyle Wilmarth, a wildlife officer with the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Division, as saying that no animal common to the area would transport a body up the mountain from Redwine's residence to the first recovery site, unquote. So there you have it from the horse's mouth, the people that know Colorado wildlife best, not something due to animal activity. Investigators also determined that there was most likely one person involved in Dylan's murder, And a former FBI profiler looked over Redwine's statements and actions after Dylan's disappearance, and he felt really confident that Redwine most likely was responsible for Dylan's murder. So that really covers the big pieces of evidence in the case against Mark Redwine and really what the prosecution is building on going into trial. But I do want to cover some odd notes and inconsistencies that I came across while researching this case. The airline ticket for Dylan to visit his father was a one-way ticket, and I literally get chills every time I read, write, or say that. Redwine did an interview with a local TV station not long after the initial search for Dylan. In his living room, he pointed out the couch with a pillow and a blanket on it that he said Dylan used. Now, where were these items when cops needed them to find a scent for search dogs as soon as Dylan went missing? Many people have speculated that this was staged. Redwine also sent a child support check that day, even though the amount he was supposed to pay hadn't been even determined by the courts yet. So this is another move that is really speculated that... He might have calculated this to make him look like he was being a really good dad and he was really on top of it when really the worst type of thing that you can do as a parent is happening. During his search on the first day Dylan was missing, Redwine went to the house of a friend of Dylan's. He said the boy told him he hadn't seen Dylan, but in a later interview, Redwine said that no one was home. And this one could maybe be easy to write off, as if you were a frantic parent looking for your kid, you might have just gotten confused or gotten houses mixed up. But we have seen in episode one and through other things that have happened through this case that Redwine does tend to give conflicting information about the same instances in interviews. Dylan's friend that he was supposed to meet up with the morning after he arrived in Durango had texted him later in that morning as well and had told him to go to a specific friend's house. This would be a house that Redwine checked in later on when he was looking for Dylan. And some people consider this kind of nefarious that Redwine could have had Dylan's phone and so then he would have known to go to this particular house. But Durango's also not that big 
and Dylan lived there for a long time. So it's not far-fetched to think that he would have checked all of Dylan's friends' houses anyway. So while you can definitely frame this one in not a great light, I don't think it's so much of a smoking gun as some of the other inconsistencies that we see in the case. And also on a very random side note, uh, there is another similarity to another case that I have covered, that one of Crystal Reisinger. La Plata County, like Sawatch County that Crystal went missing in, also has a very, very small police force. And we know this comes with its own complications early on in a search. So just something to think about as this case continues to get covered. So overall, the case against Mark Redwine is definitely circumstantial, but it's a strong circumstantial case, not only for the evidence found in Redwine's house, but also because the prosecution has a body, they can prove that Dylan has indeed passed away, and they can prove it was not of natural causes. The circumstantial evidence in this case is also strong because it can effectively combat other theories like the ones we talked about earlier, like an accidental death in the wilderness. Mark Redwine has continued to deny any involvement in his son's disappearance or his death and has even set forth the claim that he's been set up. COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive-through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. So this case would be dramatic enough just given the circumstances and Dylan's death, but the ensuing trial has been nothing short of a cluster. If you remember from the last episode, Mark Redwine was arrested in July 2017. District Attorney Christian Champagne, who was elected in 2016, was set to be the head prosecutor at the trial. There was a motion to move the trial outside of La Plata County due to the press around the case and the small size of the population there. But District Judge Jeffrey Wilson denied this motion. The trial was expected to last a short seven weeks. However, this trial date would never come, 
and the delays and postponements would continue for years. The first trial was set for November 2018, but was postponed in order for the judge to rule on some pretrial motions. Another trial was set for September 2019, and this date was postponed when one of Redwine's attorneys was arrested for assault and domestic violence. So that's really comforting. The next trial date was set for April 2020. As we know, the COVID-19 pandemic really began to blow up in March 2020. So this trial was postponed due to COVID-19. In this trial, someone reported symptoms and said they could not taste or smell, which is a symptom majorly indicative of COVID-19. So the trial was postponed and the person's symptoms were resolved by the same afternoon. There were also attempts to prosecute Redwine in October and November of 2020. The October trial was set for October 29th, 2020. Jury selection started that day, but was delayed again when District Judge Jeffrey Wilson started exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19. After the judge tested negative and they were ready to get going again, members of the defense started showing symptoms of COVID-19, so the trial was again postponed. Opening statements were then rescheduled for November 9th, 2020, and a mistrial was declared the same exact day. District Attorney Christian Champagne accused a member of the Defense Council of not following COVID-19 restrictions and that over the weekend they had been seen with someone outside of their household without a mask on. But it was actually the Defense Council that requested this particular mistrial. They noted that one member of the defense was showing COVID-19 symptoms. They asked to be quarantined for 10 to 14 days, which is what was recommended by the CDC. The judge was required to call a mistrial because of this. If they had continued and a lawyer had become ill, it would have been considered ineffective assistance of counsel for Redwine and could have immediately been used as a basis for an appeal if he was convicted. There's a lot of suspicion regarding this particular mistrial. Redwine was caught on a recorded phone call from the La Plata County Detention Center saying that his defense team was looking for a way to stall the proceeding. And it seems like if they were willing to be sketchy about it, this was an easy way to have stalled. Elaine posted on the Facebook page, Dylan Redwine, Journey to Justice, after the November mistrial. Quote, I'm just curious, what happens when we start again and the other public defender has a symptom? The symptoms range from a scratchy throat to a fever and everything else in between. So we start again. All of us understand how serious COVID-19 is. We do. But if we cancel this trial every time someone has a symptom, we'll be here until 2022. After we begin again, Mark will have symptoms. Any bets? Does anyone realize the pain, agony, and financial hardship this has put on this family? Unquote. Elaine was also quoted in Jennifer McRae's reporting for CBS Denver as having said, quote, I feel more helpless now than I did then, unquote. Then was referring to when Dylan was missing. On March 5th of this year, 2021, another mistrial was declared. The court was scheduled for a March 5th pretrial and an April 12th trial, but at the time, all jury-based trials were still postponed due to COVID-19 concerns. A pretrial conference was held on May 14th, and determined that the trial will start as planned. 
Jury selection will begin June 14th, 2021, which is next Monday. Should jury selection go as planned, opening statements are set to start on June 21st. This new trial date will take place as we approach the nine-year anniversary of the last time Dylan Redwine was ever seen. Mark Redwine has continued to deny any knowledge or involvement in the crime. He has been held in La Plata County Detention Center this entire time while he has been awaiting trial. At this point, it is still unknown if Mark Redwine will take the stand. If convicted, the second-degree murder charge would be an up to 48-year sentence. The maximum sentence for the charge of child abuse resulting in death is 16 years. If Redwine were to get convicted of both, I am assuming that the charges would be served concurrently. And if his sentence were to take into account his time served, which is around five years, assuming the case is finally resolved this year, he would spend about 43 years in jail. Redwine would most likely die behind bars as he is currently 59 years old. Okay, so let's wrap up today with a few musings. We've got a lot to digest here. Musing number one. Last week, one of my musings addressed how the scenario could have played out differently if the judge ruling on the custody case had not decided that Dylan had to visit his father at Thanksgiving. I started to think about how things might have changed if Corey had been made to make that trip as well. Whether Dylan's fate was at the hands of his father or not, it begs the question that if Corey had been with him, would Dylan still be alive? Or would Elaine have lost both of her sons? Musing number two. I will be really curious to see how jury selection for this case goes. As far as I know, it is still being held in La Plata County. And it is going to be near impossible to find a jury that is not aware of this crime. So they most likely will end up with a jury that says they can be impartial about it. But this could open the door if Redwine were to be convicted for maybe an appeal based on an impartial jury or bad jury selection. I mean, I sure hope that this is not the case because Elaine, Corey, and the rest of Dylan's family have already waited so long for justice. I just can't imagine them having to go through an appeal process as well. Now, I know Mark Redwine is innocent until proven guilty, but the evidence here is not looking great. With that in mind, I want to lay out a couple of thoughts from the possible standpoint that he is responsible for Dylan's death. Musing number three, Mark Redwine was in the process of organizing another search for Dylan on August 4th to 11th of 2017, but he was arrested the month prior. Shelly Watson, a co-worker he had been training as a truck driver, was planning on hosting the search. She thought that Redwine was not capable of doing anything to his son. The search was going to be of Middle Mountain, which is located just behind Redwine's Colorado home. Personally, I think this is a load of BS. It seems like a lot of too little, a lot of too late to me. Keep in mind that Redwine only joined in on one search for his son of the many that took place and the ones that took place sooner to Dylan's disappearance that could have been more fruitful. I think that if he is guilty, this move was either to A, take the heat off of him as police were closing in, or B, 
He told this gal the sad story and she wanted to help and he just kind of went with it. And it might potentially make him look good. Musing number four. Again, if Redwine is guilty, you have to wonder if he told Dylan he could see his friend the next morning just to get a paper trail and throw some suspicion off of him. If searchers or investigators thought that Dylan could have been going somewhere that morning, it would have bought Redwine some time before suspicion was on him. Musing number five. I think the only piece of evidence missing here that would be really compelling to me would be if Dylan's belongings were ever located. They might have been, but I can't find anything about this being released to the public. Depending on where or in what condition these items were found in, I think could affect the case in a really large way. Musing number six. Part of true crime that really interests me personally is statistics based on certain types of crime. Crime, and murder specifically, is what seems like an irrational area of the human mind that we are always trying to rationalize. We're always trying to create patterns and reasons that people do these kind of things. So the killing of one's own child is called filicide. There is maternal filicide, which is murder committed by the mother, and paternal filicide, which is perpetrated by the father. And when I go into these statistics, this also includes step parents. So here's a few facts from Doug Chris, who did some reporting on the topic for CNN. An average of 500 children are killed by their parents every year. Around 72% of those victims are age six or under. One third of that 72% are under one year of age. And 13% of these victims were aged 18 to 40, showing that this impulse is not related only to small children. These numbers are really hard to swallow because this happens a lot more than we really like to think it does in our society. This article also broke down the basic reasons or kind of buckets that people that commit filicide often fall into based on research of these specific types of cases. The first one is altruism. This is a real or a perceived to be real reason that it would be more gentle for the child to be killed than to let them live. Some examples of this include when a parent is about to commit suicide or if the child is terminally ill. The second bucket is psychosis. These are reasons not rooted in reality, like a parent who thinks their children are possessed or they're evil or they're the devil, something not within a stable mind frame. The third is unwanted child. The parent just doesn't want the child or the responsibility and they eliminate the issue. The fourth reason is accidental death, which is either as a true accident or as the result of physical abuse. This was one of the many theories in the John Bonet Ramsey case that her mother had committed some kind of physical abuse that killed her and she then had to cover it up. But that case is a whole nother thing on its own. We all know that. <laughs> um, and the last one is spousal revenge, which is purely to get revenge on the other parent. Really, the child really becomes a pawn in this situation. If Mark Redwine were to be convicted, I think he would most likely fall into this category. 
This case has been very tough to cover because at the end of the day, a child always assumes that their parents are there to protect them and take care of them. And I cannot imagine the fear and despair that a child would feel when they realize in their last moments that this is no longer true. I think it also represents a very sad breakdown in some part of our society that makes parents feel that this is the answer. And really, until I looked at these statistics, I didn't realize really how rampant it is and certainly something that needs addressed both at a scientific and on a social level. While Dylan's family has lost their beloved 13-year-old, Dylan's story has served to help others. Elaine Hatfield-Hall and Laura Saxton worked together to affect the charges placed on murderers in Colorado after sentencing. Laura Saxton's daughter, Kelsey Schelling, went missing on February 4th, 2013. Kelsey's boyfriend, Dante Lucas, was just convicted of first-degree murder in March of 2021. Kelsey's body has still not been found to this day. With Elaine and Laura's urging, a new law was passed that makes sentences for tampering with a body or any evidence in a homicide a Class 3 felony. Prior to passing this law, these charges held very little weight and very little effect on sentencing for convicted criminals. The felony holds a sentence of 12 years for each charge. This change in the law has played a part in some very recent and notorious cases in the state. Most notably was that of the Chris Watts case. Watts murdered his pregnant wife, Shanann, and two young daughters, Bella and Celeste. In addition to five life sentences, this law added years to his sentence. The law is also expected to come into effect in the ongoing Gannon Stock case, in which his stepmother is accused of killing the 11-year-old and disposing of his body in Florida. In Jamie Seymour's writing for KRQE, Elaine said, quote, These children have been victims of their own families, and it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. It's constantly something I've had to deal with, unquote. Well, Elaine and Laura, I think I can speak for all of us when I say thank you for trying to help others who have suffered the terrible situation that you have been put in. Elaine and her husband, Mike, still live in Monument, Colorado. She recently made a visit to see her niece, Nicole Yost, in Loveland, Colorado, to take part in some of the town's Valentine's Day traditions. These served as a celebration of what would have been Dylan's 22nd birthday month. As of that trip, a red heart now hangs on a street pole in Loveland asking, quote, justice for Dylan Redwine. We can all only hope that justice comes at the end of this summer and with no further delay for this family that has already lost so much. Thanks again for listening today, guys. This has been a tough case to go over. It is always tough to cover cases that involve the death of a child and even more terribly, possibly at the hand of a parent. But unfortunately, these are the stories that we have to tell to hope that someone feeling this way or feeling that this is an option makes a better choice or gets help or whatever the case may be. This trial is fast approaching and I will plan on doing updates on this as it begins to unfold. 
Now, these updates might come in bite-sized pieces that won't be full weekly episodes, and you won't know they're coming out if you don't follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. So please make sure to do that. And don't forget to connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And if you want to dig in a little deeper on this case, all of the source material that I used for this episode can be found at altitudecrime.com. So thanks again for spending a part of your day with me. Thanks for taking this time to listen about Dylan and his life. And again, I hope justice is coming for Dylan and his family soon. I cannot wait to tell you another story, so I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 10, The Murder of Dylan Redwine. Part two was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.